Hello and welcome, citizen scientists, to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Today we chat with Dr. Carol Kirchhoff about biological energy, the wonders of CRISPR, and how awesome we both think Gattaca is. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. We're doing another show on genetics, which I really love talking about and learning about, probably because I don't know a lot about it to begin with. So it's really awesome to have people who can come and talk to me and teach me about things, because really I just love learning about anything. But uh, some quick news in the world of genetics before we get down to the science of CRISPR. Later in the show, Dr. Carol Kircho and I will discuss using light to control cells in living tissue, but light isn't the only thing that genes can be sensitive to. Scientists have known for a while that the temperature of the nest can determine the sex of turtles, but now they've identified a specific temperature-responsive gene that is responsible for making it happen. When researchers muted the gene's activity, they found that turtle embryos incubated at low temperatures would turn out female instead of male as expected. Scientists have been trying to explain this mechanism since the 60s. One issue preventing this discovery is the fact that gene manipulation techniques that have been well-established in mice don't work as well with reptiles. The success this time around came from injecting a virus with a bit of artificial RNA into the developing eggs. Further study has shown that while this gene is key in the decision between male and female, it is just one of many genes that help with the development. Further, it may not be that this specific gene senses temperature directly, but simply receives information from another gene that does. In other news, Science News Magazine did a great article in its June 2018 edition called Risks and Riddles. This is about health risks results from consumer genetic testing sites like Ancestry.com and, more specifically, 23andMe. While regulations prevent these companies from releasing much of the health information they uncover, a workaround has developed which allows customers to have that data analyzed by a third-party lab. The issue is that many of these tests can be false positives resulting in costly and unnecessary medical procedures. Even worse are the false negatives which can cause people to ignore recommendations from their doctors that could be potentially life-saving. So remember, for now, treat this consumer genetic testing site and the information it gives you as interesting information, but don't let them replace legitimate medical advice from your own doctor. If you'd like to read more about these and other science news, check out sciencenews.org or look for the links for more information in the show notes. Enough from the news rack. Let's get to our episode on CRISPR with Dr. Carol Kircho. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm here with Dr. Carol Kircho and today we're going to be talking a little bit about CRISPR. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been a topic that I've wanted to cover for a while, and I just, I don't have any experience to talk to it on my own. (laughs) You're welcome. Happy to be here. So before we get started, why don't you tell me a little bit about you? Tell me uh, where where you're from, what your background is, you know, just kind of that information. Yeah. um, So I am originally from Connecticut, and I live in San Diego now. Um, I did my graduate work in at the University of Connecticut, and then I did my postdoc here in San Diego. I've moved a little bit around the country since then, New York, Salt Lake City, Utah, and made my way back to San Diego. Um, My background is in molecular biology, uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, which other people call simply cloning, (laughs) and um, biological clean energy, and um, mainly reproduction. My degree itself is in reproduction. So cloning is kind of a form of reproduction if you stretch it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you've kind of lived all over the place in the States. Huh? Do you you uh, you like where you're at now? Is that kind of drew you back here or did you come here for a job or? Yeah, no, I, I love San Diego. Um, and there are a couple different um, biotech centers in the U.S., Boston, San Francisco, and really here in San Diego. Um, so it's, yeah, I keep returning here um, because of the the richness of the biotech scene, as well as the beaches. <laughs> <laughs> the beaches help. <laughs> so yeah, you the beaches uh, do help. You mentioned that you do biological energy. What What is that? Explain that to me. Yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, I decided to strike out on my own and have a startup. Um, I had a concept with my collaborator at the University of Utah. And we were actually trying to um, 
extract energy from the sugar, like glucose molecules using enzymes and push that out into a circuit. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's kind of what your cells do anyway. Uh, We were just harnessing the methodology for um, our electrodes. So we invented something called the biological supercapacitor. The patent on that was just granted this past year. Congratulations. Um, And thank you. Uh, Yeah. And it was kind of a long, hard slog. We made it all the way through prototype, um, published our work academically, and then sort of at the very end of the project, uh, we still didn't have customers and we hadn't gotten the grant funding that we sought and we didn't get VC money. We didn't get any angel money, so we kind of shelved the project for a later date. But it sounds like none of the issues was with the, was with the technology itself. It's just the you know the back end of of running a startup, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and you know, biology has had a long time to perfect uh, cellular metabolism, so we really were not doing anything new or inventive. Only applying you know engineering to right. what biology's already perfected, yeah. So, well, that sounds pretty cool. I hope that uh, you can come back to that and, and get some seed money because I'd like to see where that goes. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it was definitely a great project. Um, uh, the sugar molecule is perfect for storing a lot of energy. And every time you break a bond, it liberates an electron. So if you can push that out into a circuit, um, you know, it's it's a good source of biological energy. And then we were making and rebreaking the same bonds. So it was a redox pair of enzymes. So we were never really spending the glucose um, entirely as fuel. We were just, like I said, making and rebreaking the bonds. Um, so that was, I felt like also kind of the neat part about it is mm-hmm. that we weren't just like tearing it up and then needing to get more glucose from somewhere that's crazy. I uh, is so. Does it work kind of like? I mean, I guess if you're not using all of it, you are you are still still using right. some of it, right? There, there's a you know a conservation of energy system going on here, and you and I'm assuming you lose some of it in some fashion, heat or something, maybe. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's almost like um, a biological battery, then. Yeah, it was. We were storing the energy um, there in the the glucose molecule. Um, and very similar to a battery where one side of it will um, kind of charge up and then it'll drain from the other side. Um, but this was sort of like a double layer capacitance, like a, like a traditional capacitor mm-hmm. rather than like a chambered design, like the battery. Gotcha. So, well, that's really yeah. cool. And I'm a biologist. I am not super strong in engineering. So we, <laughs> um, my partner was <clears throat> the materials scientist and the engineer. Um, so it was kind of like us together was like the perfect marriage. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, it's, it's too bad that that didn't uh, get any seed money. But uh, so I guess, how did you get yeah. into all of this? Like, I mean, those are, I mean, you got CRISPR, you've got that kind of aspect, but it's all kind of based around biology. Like what, did you always want to to get into biology as a kid or what kind of drove you? Yeah. So ever since I was young, I've always loved biology. Um, I think when I was much younger, I wanted to kind of be a marine biologist. Then I went to wanting to be a forensic biologist because I was into the blood and gore. And (laughs) um, of course, I'm from Connecticut where Dr. Henry Lee is from, and he was such a famous um, forensic biologist. And, you know, he worked on really high profile cases like the JonBenet Ramsey case um, and the OJ Simpson case and a couple other really big cases when I was little. And then as I got kind of older, I also discovered Stephen Hawking and sort of became fascinated with genetics and the role they play in disease and um, how he was the smartest man, you know, I felt like alive, but he was trapped in this body that was um, genetically, you know, deteriorating and he was unable to to move or speak essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that so many people had died of ALS and they couldn't predict the progression of his 
disease and it was so rare that it, it didn't affect his brainstem and his um you know breathing functions right. that he was able to last a lot longer than other people so you know i became fascinated with all of it and in the end it led me to this field of biology um i went to the university of connecticut and we have uh we are a land grant institution there so when i got there um it was kind of interesting because i started getting involved in labs and the highest biotech lab on campus um, doing like the most advanced cutting edge work was the one that was cloning the cattle. So in a land grant institution, that's um, basically an institution that has to maintain working herds of animals. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how they get their funding. So it is an agricultural college. And I was very lucky to have been um, taken up by the Department of Agriculture and, and joined a lab there as an undergrad and then that's where I went to grad school. Okay. That's pretty cool. Actually, the school that I went to uh, was a agricultural school as well. And I went for physics. So was, uh, I feel like physics yeah, wasn't always their go. priority. <laughs> right. <laughs> so besides the the kind of stuff that you're doing with with a startup or whatever, I'm, I noticed that you kind of, you've been on other podcasts and stuff like that. So you've kind of got some science communication stuff going on. How do you feel about kind of that role? Do you put much time into that or what, what kind of stuff do you do with that? Yeah, I do actually. So for the past, I would say about five years, I've been really into communicating science to the public. Um, when I first started off, I would say I was pretty terrible at it. <laughs> I didn't really know how to tell a story. I was um, really invested in the jargon of my craft. Of course, you learn, you know, the whole time that you're getting your degrees, how to write in this like stilted academic language. Right. Um, that's not compelling. It's not emotional. It's the exact opposite of that. Uh, so then, you know, fast forward 10 years and I'm realizing that I have an opportunity to make an impact in the world by um, bringing science to the people. Because I think, you know, everybody's born kind of a scientist, mm -hmm. and most people can understand scientific concepts. And the education we have in the US, you know, everybody gets basic science education. Um, I think at some point, people learn to not love science because it gets complicated by either jargon or math or expectation that you can divest yourself emotionally from the work. Um, and so in one way or another, people start dropping out of their interest with science. Right. And then you kind of have this, you know, recently this population of, of adults um, that is, you know, we, there's just so much pseudoscience and so much um, kind of anti-science sentiment right now in the U.S. Of course, now I've gotten interested in looking at this trend historically and seeing how this has risen and fallen over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I've just started looking into is what are the trends um, in society that – um, cause the uh, knowledge base of science and the, um, you know, either anti-science or pro-science feelings as a whole in society to rise and fall. What, what controls those tides? Right. It's like, what is the moon to the science sentiment in, in the world? Yeah. And one thing that I've noticed that specifically – in the United States. And I didn't really notice this until recently when I was talking to some colleagues and some other people that uh, are not, you know, uh, Americans. And they commented on how much our science in our country seems to be connected to politics. And that's not something that mm. I guess exists in a lot of other countries. So, and our political climate yeah. isn't the best currently. So, right, right. But it, it is interesting that the, trend toward deregulation in the current administration is allowing some of the sciences that have previously been overregulated to sort of flourish. Mm -hmm. So you have nuclear, mm -hmm. which is 
sort of having a little bit more freedom under the current administration right. and biotech actually. So, you know, the, the current administration has decided that they're not going to regulate CRISPR, for example, vegetables or produce or products the same way that they were regulating the traditional uh, transgenic GMOs of the past. Um, so the, the transgenic GMOs of the past are typically made with a plant um, virus, a, a pathogen, a plant pathogen. And that was a concern because you have something that's inserting a gene um, into another organism being controlled by a viral vector. And and so, yeah, like the new, which I think we're going to get into when we talk about CRISPR, but the new way of genetic engineering is less of a concern because you know, in a lot of cases, you're not inserting a gene from another species. Right. And in in most, I would say 99% of the cases, you're not using a plant pathogen with CRISPR. There's one example I can think of. But, Actually, at my old university, the University of Connecticut, <laughs> where they're still using a plant pathogen. But, but um, other than that. But yeah, so it is interesting <laughs> that, you know, I would say on the conservative and the liberal side, there are both sort of these hot button issues that are highly politicized when really the facts should be speaking for themselves and the science shouldn't be politicized. The policy, like what do we do about it right. should be um, the the part that is politicized. But, you know, you have this like strong denial of, of anthropogenic climate change or human caused climate change, um, the strong denial about, rising carbon levels and fossil fuels contributing to that and how and why that that's happening um, when really we should be focusing on the policy. And um, I agree with you completely. Yeah, that is kind of unusual, I would say, about the U.S. And I definitely would love to continue to cultivate a broader view of why that that is U.S. American kind of thing mm -hmm. and our, where our neighboring countries have um, sort of separated the two and they can agree on the facts themselves, even though they are in discussion about different policy measures, right? how to handle the facts. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So it kind of a good segue in, into CRISPR. I just wanted to state at the front here, when I first heard about CRISPR, I thought it was like a technology that was developed in or invented or whatever. And as I read more about it, I realize it's not exactly, it's more of a reutilization of a process that already exists. Is that, is that an accurate thing to say? Actually, both of those things are, are true. <laughs> um, so <laughs> as with, yeah, both of them are true. As with most awesome discoveries, like the biological supercapacitor, you know, nothing is really new in the world. We look at it in nature first and we you know, that's that this is the argument for funding so-called basic research, mm -hmm. where you learn about something that you didn't know could be useful, and then humans end up harnessing that for their own benefit. Right. So yeah, it started off as a basic discovery about the immune system of bacteria. Bacteria have a rudimentary immune system, uh, very much like ours. So when bacteria encounter something that makes them sick, they incorporate a piece of that DNA into their own DNA so that they can fight it quickly the next time. It's called the adaptive immune system. And we have something very similar when we get sick, obviously, with a virus. We can recognize the virus or bacteria better the next time, and our immune cells start attacking it right away. Mm -hmm. um, so it was definitely discovered in bacteria first as part of this immune system Different pieces of it were discovered by different groups, and there's this humongous patent battle going on right now for who discovered you know, the best, most useful parts of CRISPR first. I think it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out with how the patents are actually the patents are actually granted. And then, you know, I'm I'm sure that this group is going to end up winning a Nobel Prize one day for this discovery. Right. <laughs> um, because Which is why it is care. so amazing. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Do you do you think this this yeah. this patent fight is causing any sort of delays in research, or is it just something that's kind of going on in the background? No, 
I think it's going on in the background. I don't think it's causing any delays at all in research. As a matter of fact, there are, are you know, the volume of CRISPR publications per year is in the thousands. Um, and that is is just, you know, it's growing exponentially. Like, if, if you know, like, Moore's Law yes. from computer science, yeah, then it's it's probably, like, actually going faster than that. Like, the curve is is steeper than your typical Moore's law. So it probably mirrors more like what happened after we first sequenced the human genome. And then the, even though the, that was having its own patent battle, um, the volume and, uh, of research was not slowed down at all. It's, it's probably, yeah, outpacing Moore's. So. Well, that's good to know. I'd hate to see something like that actually affect the science yeah. behind things. So it's always nice to hear when it's not. Yeah. So the best part about CRISPR is, the, you know, the part that researchers have taken to use for themselves. We have 3 billion base pairs in our genome. Um, somebody told me that if you lined it all up, the DNA in all of our cells, you know, it would like go to the edge of the universe or something like that. Um, how would you find if you were a molecule, the one spot in the DNA, like the one nucleotide out of three billions that you needed to change? Wow. Previously, that's always <laughs> been the challenge. How, how do you find that nucleotide, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's A's, there's T's, there's G's, there's C's, there's billions of them. And you need to find the one in the gene. And that gene might contain, you know, a thousand other A's, T's, G's, or C's. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's so great about CRISPR is that it provides this unprecedented ability to hone in on the exact nucleotide that needs changing. So that really has been the aspect more than anything that has revolutionized all of this genetic engineering. Okay. Um, Different pieces of all of this we could do before. There's something called talons, which are um, programmable, programmable, other programmable genetic engineering systems. Um, And there are, you know, many other viral um, kind of systems that we have co-opted for cutting DNA and putting a piece of DNA that we want in there. Um, But none of them have been this amazing. so the the targeting system not only contains that the way to target that specific piece of DNA, but you can also carry with it an enzyme. So enzymes are basically responsible. They're like the verb, right? Of like the, the of like language. Mm-hmm. They are the things that cause anything to get done in a cell. So. The typical enzyme that CRISPR carries with it is called Cas9. So we call it the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Um, But you can actually now take that system, connect another enzyme to it, target that exact spot in the DNA, and then that enzyme will work doing whatever its job is, whatever its verb is in the sentence. Okay. Um, So it's, it's... yeah, so it's really, really amazing. It's taking the whole of molecular biology and changing it. So is this like every tool we have more efficient than the other methods that uh, have been done before? Is it quicker? Is it allow right. more precision? It is. It's it's much quicker. It's more precise, much quicker. Um, you know, before you would have to kind of breed mice together for many generations to have a stable genetic change. You can do that now in like one generation. So that in and of itself is much quicker. That's crazy. You can genetically engineer the sperm itself. You can genetically engineer the embryo. You can genetically engineer the adult mouse. You can genetically engineer anything, anywhere where you can access the DNA, you can genetically engineer it. So now also you can basically turn any animal or any organism into a model system um, whereas before we were really limited to mice and fruit flies and worms and the typical models in biology. Right. Um, so now you see people doing things with like coral reefs, for example, because they can target the DNA. Well, that's cool. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's really opened up just 
any organism you can think of. I mean, this is so easy to use and so efficient that even, you know, middle and high school students can do this in their garage. And the science fair, you know, the science fairs all over the country have had to basically say, like, you can't have homemade CRISPR projects. I was just going to say fair. that sounds because really cool and like, scary. It gets into a dicey area. <laughs> exactly. So they really, you know, need to be under the, um, the watchful eye of of scientists and researchers and be kind of in a lab to be able to submit those projects for science fair. It sounds like the equivalent of, of uh, fusion in 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 physics, where you've got the kids trying to make their fusion machines in the garage. Yeah. So maybe we better better not yeah. do that. <laughs> except, except, and now think about it like this: it's not really the fusion, but it's touching the battery to your tongue. Right. That's how easy it is. <laughs> you know, it's like making the lemon acid light bulb, you know, right. circuit. That's how easy it is. It's like the intro to biology is now CRISPR. So yeah, it is crazy. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Vince. And we're from the Nick and Vince Podcast, where we talk about arts, movies, comic books, history, science, really anything pop culture related. But not politics. We don't talk <laughs> politics Uh-oh. here. But we also have... Well, also we have occasional guests, like podcasters, authors, and comedians. Well, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Podbean. You can also like our Facebook page, Nick and Vince podcast and follows and twitter at nick and vince to get all our new episodes and new up to dates about our podcast and now back to chris in a dash of science Let me ask you this question. We talked a little bit earlier about kind of the regulations on this sort of stuff. One thing that I always see whenever I see something great and awesome come out in any form of genetic engineering, it's always kind of with the caveat that we can't actually do this yet. We can't actually help human beings yet because of this regulation or because of ethical reasons or whatever. So with CRISPR, are there actually things going on right now that are being used, you know, in the medical industry or with, you know, agriculture or whatever? Yes. Yep. Um, so there's actually a crispered mushroom that was made at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, it is going to be on the market very soon. I mean, the Department of Agriculture said, you know, that it's um, not going to be regulated the same way. So mushrooms are, they're really easy to brown. Um, they're really easy to bruise when you pick them. Um, and so this mm-hmm. crisper just basically just shut off the gene. It wasn't a gene from another species. It wasn't a gene from a fish. It wasn't using the plant, you know, virus um, of the past. It just, you know, went in and shut off the gene. So there, in a sense, it's like, what do you regulate in that case? Right. Because there was nothing added. There was nothing taken away. There was only basically transcription and translation were stopped of the protein. Mm-hmm. So it does make sense that it's not regulated the same way. Um, so I think very quickly oh, I, we're going to see it. this. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would too. And I think the other place we're going to see things immediately right away are going to be in the products that are made. Um, there are companies all over um, that make industrial products and um, things that you could never even think of, like really complex fragrant fragrances and flavor molecules are made in in bacteria and or yeast. And that's actually a good thing because um, we like to plunder the natural world, like vanilla trees or other like cinnamon bark trees, um, very sensitive habitats so that we can have, you know, our doTERRA, 
essential oils that like everyone's selling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, essential so oils. So it's good, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, it's like you want your vanilla and your and your cinnamon and um the other the other fragrances and flavors that come from plants to be produced in a sustainable way. Um, bacteria and yeast are the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, also there are, are human trials going on with CRISPR right now. And recently mm-hmm. some embryos were made that corrected a genetic defect, um, which was a cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, what we're going to see um, as is the case when there is something that is overwhelmingly useful and the pros outweigh the cons, um, it will be consumer driven and the demand for it will be so great that it'll be sort of a tidal wave that overtakes the regulation. <laughs> well, I hope so, because that's always been, like I said, one of the the downsides to reading about all the cool science going on in this area. So there's just so much, you know, especially around the the ethical you know, ideas behind any sort of genetic engineering always seem to come up. So it doesn't sound like at least in some applications that there's much worry about that. Right. Yep. I think the worry is definitely a little bit less than with the other methods. And, you know, I mean, I definitely can understand that when you take a gene from one organism and put it whole into another organism, that people are understandably a little put off by that. Right. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, and especially there's not, you know, a lot of science out yet on those things as far as the history of science goes, right? Like it's all within this last maybe couple of decades that we've really started to see movement in this area, I think. Right. And I think that that definitely is true. Um, But again, the biological systems we took these from are much, much older than us and um, you can look to nature for different examples of where genes have been moved around by natural processes from one organism to another. And that's kind of how we understood it from first principles. Like this is not going to be that dangerous because we have seen it time and time again, actually in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, obviously it's been working for them. So, <laughs> right. So one of the, one of the things that actually drew my attention to you and and some of your work is an article that you wrote uh, for medium called the top 10 crispiest CRISPR applications, which I loved that name by the way, uh, that are not gene editing. And that's kind of what drew my attention because we see a lot of this specifically, you know, in the gene editing arena. And uh, I was kind of curious, you know, if we could go through some of the things that you kind of see happening that are not gene editing. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe let's just say one or two sentences about what gene editing actually is. Um, sure. And then we'll go on to like all the things that are not gene editing. You know, so now we're not moving genes wholesale from one organism into another. Um, what people tend to do nowadays is something called gene editing, where they're actually changing a nucleotide um, from what it is they're removing like a chemical group and actually changing it into a different nucleotide right in line with Mm -hmm. the rest of the dna so if you have a lot of uh you know a lot of these diseases have one nucleotide that is um causing an issue and you can actually mutate that to be the other so whether it's an a or a t to becoming a c or a g um and so that's what we call gene editing Um, The other thing that CRISPR was really good at in the beginning that people used it a lot for was just simply disrupting the gene so that it was no longer able to be transcribed or translated. Um, And that was, that was achieved through something called a double stranded break. Mm -hmm. And then the other way that CRISPR initially worked was they at the site of the double stranded break, um, you could also do an editing process where you would provide a template. And then on the other strand, the template would be copied, which is the normal mechanism of DNA copying. Um, But now you kind of provided a new template to copy off of. So you could 
you could um, insert or change a gene function that way by just inserting a big piece of DNA that, you know, provided a new function to a gene. Okay. Um, so when I wrote that article, my goal was kind of to talk about all of the other things that were not those three things. Right. And there have been a lot of really cool applications of CRISPR because, like I said, you can, you can actually replace that Cas9 enzyme or you can inactivate the Cas9 enzyme. Um, so you can target all of these different enzymes to a very specific spot in the DNA. So one of my favorite ones, for example, is this photo-inducible uh, CRISPR application. So you can actually start to use light to control transcription and translation of the gene at that site by sending a protein to the site on that DNA and then shining a light at it. You know, there are a mm-hmm. lot of these proteins, like for example, in our eyes or that bacteria have that respond to light. And so that's what one of the, you know, one of the people called like a photo um, optogenic toggle. So you can toggle genes on and off externally by shining a light at it. That is crazy. It's really, <laughs> yeah, it's really crazy. It's like... <laughs> So does this have That's applications of, other than than research applications? I mean, I assume this would be primarily done in a lab for doing studying of different types of things, but is there any other application besides that for something like that? I mean, I think that you you probably could think of you know, people will think, but I I these things are so new just within the past few years that mm-hmm. I think the um the basic work is still being done. So the real practical application of, you know, what what would you like to reverse with light, turning light on and turning light off in cells hasn't right. really been, you know, discovered yet. But but being able to externally control the the, the timing of transcription and translation of DNA um, would is an amazing feat. Yeah, it sounds insane. <laughs> it's crazy yeah. that that is a thing that can happen. And there's, you know, there's a couple other things like if you picture DNA um, being this long string of letters, and then if you if you think of what happens when you take a, a piece of string in your hand and you start twisting, you twist it back onto itself and back onto itself and back onto itself. And it forms these like looped loop structures. And that's exactly what our DNA does. And that's what we call chromatin. Um, There's all kinds of layers of molecules that are attached to the DNA to stop transcription or translation or to encourage transcription and translation. And all sorts of ways that the the chromatin loops itself together, um, bringing different parts of the DNA that are very um, far apart. If, if the DNA were stretched out, it, it can bring it uh, closer to each other. Right. All of those things are, are things that we've already been studying and things we already knew about. But now we can kind of use this method to, you know, again, like tar- target those genes that um, are being regulated that way. And so it's, it's this really three-dimensional structure that you you start to think it's it's almost unlimited and the de- like transcription and translation is in itself also almost unlimited and you know that that's true because we actually have very few genes compared to other organisms um, but we have all of these complicated uses of them and all of that stuff is not coded directly in the DNA. That's achieved through the um, what we call the temporal and spatial. So the where the when and where DNA is transcribed and translated, basically. Um, okay. So there are a whole bunch of CRISPR applications that target that. So there's something called CRISPR interference and CRISPR activation, and that's just basically like literally sitting on the DNA and blocking its transcription or translation. There's a chromatin, um, different chromatin uses. So bringing different pieces of DNA together. Um, There's also being able to now attach like a fluorescent protein instead of the Cas9. Um, So you can actually light up very specific parts in the DNA, um, which we have been doing that previously with GFP, but it was much, much harder to do. So, um, you know, to be able to actually see in a a disease state, for example, when the gene is being transcribed 
and translated so is is like a huge feat. Is the the fluorescent gene tagging is that similar to what we saw a few years ago with the glow in the dark frogs? Yeah, or is that it is, something different? It's basically exactly that, except if you think about like the glow in the dark frog, everything is glowing green. So if you wanted to know you know, is this drug that I'm giving these cells stopping the transcription, you know, a a certain, you know, cancer gene, for example, from being transcribed and translated, but everything is going green, then you can't actually see if that drug is working. So then they were able to take that GFP and make it more specific and more specific. And you got like just the frog's eyes glowing green, for example, or like the rabbit's ears glowing green and they got better and better and better at that but it still took like massive amounts of work and back crossing of mice um to each other and um and it only worked some of the time and it was really finicky and you you know highly highly specialized and so this is really just taking kind of all of that and making almost any scientist be able to do it even like a first year grad student and then also you can do it now with just mm-hmm. any organism. So we're not like limited to mice and frogs. And um, it, it it also happens very quickly. So it's not these like very expensive, time-consuming, multi-generation breeding projects to be able to see your protein of choice. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. Like when I started my PhD, the Oops. cost of sequencing had just come down drastically, but nothing had been sequenced yet in the, in the, the genomes um, because it had been so expensive mm-hmm. before that there was really only the human genome that had been sequenced. And then like uh, they were just starting to do the mouse and I was working in cattle. So there was this rush to sequence all the genes of all the organisms because now we could do it faster and less expensive than ever before. And it's I, I can see that the same thing will be happening with all of these CRISPR applications for the new um, crops of students going into science these days. Uh, That'll be great. That's it's amazing yeah. what one little discovery can do for an entire like field of science. <laughs> right, right. It's it's very much like the discovery of how to replicate um, DNA in the in the lab, which was the discovery of PCR. And you know, ki- the the guy that discovered it, Kerry Mullis, he won a Nobel Prize for that. Definitely, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's very much like that. Like something just something small is discovered that becomes absolutely revolutionary. There's just it, it really is amazing. I mean, when people talk about it, they are not out of place by gushing and you know making rock stars out of these scientists. I think <laughs> you know they've been winning like X Prize equivalents, and you know, right. <laughs> They're fetid everywhere they go, and it's it's with very good reason, for sure. Hello, I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Ross Blotcher, hosts of MaximumFun.org's Ono, Ross, and Carrie. We wanted to tell you the good news that our podcast is now weekly. Yeah, weekly. On Ono, Ross, and Carrie, we don't make extraordinary claims. We investigate them. We go undercover with fringe religious groups, investigate paranormal claims, and participate in pseudoscientific medical treatments and report our findings to you. In a time where alternative facts reign supreme, we cut through the murky spin to give you the real deal on topics like UFOs, the anti-vaccination movement, Scientology, and even apocalyptic churches. We're even undercover for some very exciting investigations right now. Well, not right now, right now. Yeah, that would be unwise. That's Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org. We show up so you don't have to. One of the things that was on your list that I thought was pretty interesting, too, that uh, we didn't bring up was uh, gene drives, kind of the the increasing the chance that phenotypes pass on. I, I guess there's a normal like 50% chance of, of passing on, but you can increase that. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And it was that exact problem that I was working on when we were cloning cows in grad school. Um, so we wanted to clone animals because there were desirable traits in our milking herd. And we wanted the cloned offspring to produce as much milk as the cells that they came from. If you do traditional breeding, you cut down the good genes by half and you're potentially mixing them with 
genes that could make the offspring better milkers, for example, or worse. And when we're thinking about mm -hmm. like feeding billions of more people on the exact same amount of land that we have, and actually it's probably going to be less land because we're destroying so much land um, as we go, then that kind of project becomes really important. Like, how are we going to feed, you know, 11, when 11 billion people becomes 15 billion people, how are we going to feed all these people? Right. Um, so the gene drive is an interesting concept because it, it flips that traditional Mendelian inheritance um, where you have your Punnett square and you have your little A's and big A's and little B's and big B's and you can calculate your homozygous and heterozygous combinations um, and it gives the advantage to uh, the gene that you want. So it allows the... Um, uh, it allows the offspring, like up to, I guess, like 90 or 95% of the offspring to have the gene that you want instead of 50%. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of interesting because you can't change a population genetically unless you have an overwhelming force in the gene pool. So you have to have something right. like a bottleneck or a, um, you know, a massive die off or something along those lines. If you change the gene in just one organism at a time here or there, that will be swamped out by all of the other genes and typical right. reproduction, and you won't get a, a massive change. So one of the places that they have applied that gene drive theory to um, is in mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So making them not be able to carry the malaria parasite. Um, so that's obviously like, would be like a highly, highly sought after innovation. Uh, malaria has kind of been an intractable problem. There's no good way to stop it. Um, we, you know, massively dose the environment with mosquito killing insecticide and larvicide. Um, right, which is kind there's of not really a good way to right treat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's not a good way to treat malaria for the people that have it. Um, and it's definitely like, a, you know, in a lot of ways, we can't get the insect repellent and the mosquito netting and everything into all of the places that it needs to go. Malaria has just caused so much human suffering right? Like mm -hmm. just so much human suffering. Um, and I mean, I hate getting bit by a mosquito anyway. <laughs> I, I can't imagine living in a place where there are mosquitoes that are biting you and transmitting malaria. Like I don't even want to get bit by one mosquito that's not carrying right. anything. Yeah, there's one thing that so, I like um, about living up here in the desert is there are no mosquitoes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So then, though, that's kind of where you get into the sci-fi realm of things. So now if we have the ability to change a gene in a large um, population, essentially, you know, everybody in the population at once, um, especially in a population like that where the breeding happens very quickly and mm -hmm. the new generation would happen very quickly, then you can start to get into, you know, why are people worried about CRISPR? Because even though the idea of, of, of making it so that malaria can't, can't be transmitted is a welcome idea, um, you can now start to think of all of these, you know, potential, potential, I say, um, you right. know, bad <laughs> applications of, of the technology. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we see that a lot in, I mean, if you're familiar with the, uh, the movie Gattaca, which I hope you are, I don't know why you wouldn't be. It's such a great movie. Oh, I but... definitely am. <laughs> I mean, that's where, where you got to worry about going. I have, a, I have a negative 10 prescription mm -hmm. and I don't know if you remember in the movie, there's that one scene where he's trying to cross the, the highway and it's, one of the best scenes I've ever seen depicting, you know, he's taken his contact lenses out and to avoid detection. And now he can't cross the highway because he can't see anything. And that's like, <laughs> for all of the wonderfulness that that movie is, that's one of my favorite parts, because that's the only way I can really describe to people what it's like for me when I don't have my contacts in. <laughs> I'm like, you know that movie Gattaca? <laughs> You need to go watch it and watch this one scene. Yeah, you need to go watch it and watch this one scene because that's me in the middle of the night trying to find, you know, my water on the night side table. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the other side of that, that does really kind of, I mean, we, at first glance, you're like, oh, it's the perfect, you know, 
community, the perfect society. We've, we've gotten rid of all these things, but it's interesting kind of some of the other issues that pop up that aren't even related to the science, just the socioeconomical issues the politics, you know, who has money to get this done and who doesn't, what about accident? Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, all of those issues are exactly the same with, with other things that we currently have available. Like I do reproductive biology for a living now. So I'm a clinical reproductive biologist doing embryology. And it's interesting because here in California, the people that can come get IVF and actually build their families the way that they want to and have reproductive justice are the people that can pay for it. But where I did my sabbatical back east in in Massachusetts, which is, you know, a a mecca of um, equality for everybody and... Uh, you know, just forward <laughs> thinking, right? They had gay marriage before anybody. They had, um, you know, co- they have comprehensive health care there. And one of the things that is required, mandated to be treated by um, uh, the insurance companies is IVF. So it's it's really a democratizing force and it brings, you know, the concept of who should be able to have a family, poor people, should poor people be allowed to have a family if they're infertile? Should they be able to seek right. infertile infertility treatment? Well, if you consider, um, you know, having a family and um, as you know, almost a basic human right, the liberty to to have a family the way that the way that you want to, and to be able to reproduce how and when you want to, whether it's kind of on the abortion side, and prolonging having a family or then being able to have a family whenever you want to. These reproductive Mm. technologies are, you know, at the crux of many of our political conversations, including who should have access to healthcare. Um, And that is a big question. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely a big, it shouldn't be, but it's a big question. It it shouldn't be a question. It is a big big question. It is a big question, but you know, I've, I've definitely seen people make the argument like, well, if you are infertile and you can't afford IVF, then how are you going to afford to take care of that child? Right. Yeah. But I'm glad I'm not involved in in that conversation. <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 a terrible like it's definitely a terrible thing because it's you know, it's and and if I look at it, I look at it as being able to, to have a family how and when you want it and being able to control your reproduction is a basic human right. Absolutely. So I'm on the side of democratizing <laughs> access to technologies, um, you know, and that even goes for me for like, if you, you know, you want to reproduce with your partner and you're both carriers of this, you know, whatever the illness is, and now you want to be able to have a baby, you want to be able to access these technologies that could let you cure this embryo or like not carry an embryo that has some disease, um, should you be allowed to do that? And I'm also in that camp. I do believe people should be able to access these technologies. And, you know, for me, like, I even go so far as to say, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be limited to a specific subset of diseases that some body somewhere is saying like, these are the only things you can fix with genetic engineering. I think that, you know, we are pursuing, you know, we hold as our ideals in this country, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, And so, you know, for, for me, I think, yes, there should be controls, and there should be some regulation. But I think that I don't think there should be a group of people somewhere that say like these five diseases are the only things you can do genetic engineering. Right. You know, if if somebody wants to, if you're concerned on a money aspect, right. It seems to me the cheapest way to handle disease is to prevent people from ever having them. Yeah, that is true. And if you think about this other thing, like, okay, so there might be 1% of fabulously wealthy people that decide to modify some genes so that their kid could potentially be like an Olympic athlete, for example. Like, I already don't really agree with what rich people do with their money, right? Like, a lot of rich people, I'm like, <laughs> like I don't necessarily agree with like, what the Kardashians are doing with their money, you know, and so <laughs> I don't want to be the one to sit there and say like, okay, you can't try to give your embryo this advantage. Like they still have to grow up in an environment and actually become that 
Olympic athlete, which is a whole set of characteristics that are outside of necessarily just technical ability. You know, right. it's like whether you show up every and day, the, and whether the flip you're side, you're- Yeah. It's not like they don't already spend, you know, absorbent amount of money to get their, you know, personal trainers and, and all this, you know, right. and all this other stuff that's yes. an advantage from money. Right. So. Right. Exactly. And, you know, also like a lot of these celebrities, you can't even recognize them in five or 10 years. They've had so much work done. Right. You know, it's so like kind of, okay, I'd prefer that you were spending your money on like charitable <laughs> causes, but right. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's their money and that's the system we live right. in. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Right. So. So this kind of led to to some kind of more sci-fi applications. Some things we've touched in previous shows talking about genetics and stuff like that. So the first thing is you've got you know that from this you're going to get the tinfoil hat people then they're going to and maybe maybe it's not even all tinfoil hat, but you got the the super soldier, military super soldiers, government experiments, right? So uh I mean For sure. Yeah. That that's a thing that's 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 something that that it seems like could be done with this technology. Right, right. And the government is definitely trying to do that with every other technology. So there's like robot (laughs) exoskeletons that are supposed to be making super soldiers be able to carry like hundreds of pounds because now you have this sort of carapace exoskeleton that's actually carrying the weight for you. Um, You know, you have all sorts of programs with every technology um, Mm -hmm. to try to make these super soldiers or give us an advantage or... Um, so, you know, I think the issues of consent, do you know what's happening to you and have you been appropriately consented? That is applies to any technology, whether it's CRISPR or, you know, infecting soldiers with syphilis, like in the Tuskegee experiment and then never carrying them and holding that, you know, right. The government has a history of this. definitely has a history of it and that is why we need oversight and and you know policy so whenever there's government coercion and there's not consent informed consent it doesn't matter Um, what technology you apply it to it's always a bad thing all right so so moving moving to the next the next extreme from here uh we've talked previously about superheroes and we're talking like you know, genetic mutations like X-Men style, some of those level of things. And we talked a little bit previously on a show about how it's probably not possible just because of the physiology of human beings and how that would actually work. But do you think there's something there? Do you think there with this technology, we might be able to, uh, to, to tweak the right things to come out with? Uh, I mean, obviously we're not going to fly, but you know, the yeah. super strength is, no, I do. Uh, you know, I impenetrable, do think there is impenetrable skin, like that sort of stuff. Yeah, I do think there is potential because I think that would be cool. <laughs> you know, for example, like all <laughs> I do, I do think there's potential. When you look for these things in nature, you can find them. So if you're looking right. at like the only species of cat that has a retractable claw, you know, then you can kind of start thinking like, well, we might actually know how to modify the basic body plan of an animal so that it can have a retractable claw. You definitely can do that to humans. Um, now, I think it would be hard to like incorporate a material like titanium or something like that, right? So we would only get right. kind of half of the way there. Um, but the I think you know the, things, what yeah. makes the yeah exactly. So what makes the X Men so compelling is that I think all of those mutations come from other animals. You know whether it's like you know, mag- magneto or like electromagnetism. There are definitely other species that have harnessed and used those um, capabilities or they've evolved to ha- use those capabilities and humans don't have them, but we, you know, I think we definitely could. Um, so then it becomes the question of like, well, should we? <laughs> right. <laughs> it sounds just like because we, Just first, because you're but... a scientist can... <laughs> Do you think that they should? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that leads me right back to my very last question. Okay, so <laughs> Jurassic Park style, recreation of extinct animals. Is that something we mm-hmm. could do? Mm-hmm. And is it something we should do? <laughs> would we do it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the Woolly Mammoth, um, I believe, will be here within the next two years. Yeah? Yeah, I do. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see a Woolly Mammoth. Yeah, no, I definitely think that they will probably have it done within the next two years. So it is definitely coming. So so here's what I, how I think about that. Um, there's sort of a timeline of when an animal became extinct. So we, we mm-hmm. had the last one of this species of goat and it was dying and we knew it was. So we quickly took some samples from it to preserve for future uses like cloning and bringing it back. Now, I think if you ask most people like that goat that went extinct yesterday, should we bring that back? People would say, yes, we should because we caused that Mm -hmm. to go extinct. And then you go a little bit farther back, like, okay, well, humans probably, um, you know, hunted mammoths to extinction or, you know, whatever it was, um, um, like buffalo in the American Southwest or, or whatever it was that we hunted to extinction, giant flightless birds in New Zealand um, right. or Australia or the Tasmanian devil or whatever it was. And then I think you get people that are, they get to be a little bit more like, well, I don't know if we should bring the Tasmanian devil back, but then probably I would say like 80% of the people would still say, yeah, we should. Mm-hmm. But then somehow everyone's mind kind of changes when you go even farther back and it was something that went extinct through natural causes well before humans were ever on the scene like dinosaurs and then people start to think like oh well there's a problem with bringing those back because they're not adapted for this environment or we don't you know i mean whatever the arguments are but um it really is kind of like a continuum you know we we have pressured the genomes of a lot of species to live in this environment that probably would not have evolved that way otherwise like you, you see a lot of stuff about like free range chickens. Like there's no such thing as a wild chicken. You know, its right. ancestor is like a prairie hen that was perfectly camouflaged to fit into the background. And now people are talking about making white chickens, free range chickens that are roaming all over and just getting decimated by raptors and eagles and birds of prey because they don't have any protection. So on that side, it's like going the other way. Like we made this species and now they don't fit in the environment, but now we want them to suddenly be free range again and have defenses that they don't have, (laughs) you know? And so it's, and so people like, you know, people who are are liberal, right. will will be like, yeah, I want free range chickens. And it's like, okay, but like, that chicken has no defenses and it's going to be eaten in two seconds by this red tail hawk. <laughs> well, and then there's another thing you start talking about too, because there's other stuff going on with like uh, growing meats in labs, right? So our need for farming these things might not. So are we going to change the cow back to the, the what is it called? The auroch or whatever it was back 10,000 years ago that we right. those it's like, No, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to do that. And people are still going to want to have herds of heirloom dairy cattle, no matter, or herds of you know heirloom cattle no matter what we do and -hmm. people will probably put a premium on that meat like you know this is meat from a real cow where like the plebeians are eating this like lab grown (laughs) meat and like (laughs) now i mean you see that exact same thing now like we can't get that beef that comes from japan i forget Mm -hmm. what it's called it's that like really fatty especially bread beef like they only have it in japan yeah 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 exactly so apparently there's something here that's kind of sold like under that um, under the mien of Kobe, but it's not actually Kobe beef. Um, <laughs> but I would love to go to Japan and try the actual thing. And so, you know, I oh, think yeah. it'll always exist, but, um, all right. Well, we're kind of out of time here. That uh, kind of, that went quick. So that's good. That means, uh, we had a good conversation. <laughs> so thanks again for coming yeah. on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of you got a site or anything? I don't think so. I think one of the things that we maybe planned on talking a little bit about was how I went to Oxford and actually had a debate about CRISPR oh, yes, with yes. The students at Oxford University. Um, and so just to say a few words about that, um, debate is a form of, of um, discourse that is widely practiced in England. Um, I think we, you know, we mm-hmm. try to do debate here, but it's really just a lot of shouting. Um, like there, <laughs> yes. it's very 
<laughs> it's it's a sport there so it's has a lot of rules you know and rules and like the logical arguments that you're making and you don't want to step into a logical fallacy of any kind and um but the students don't debate you like they would other students because they know that you're not a professional debater and they also probably know that you're american um, but one of the amazing <laughs> things was that I actually was in the debate with one of the discoverers of CRISPR. Um, oh. <laughs> and yeah, so we were on the same side. And that was an amazing experience. I mean, he was so eloquent and just well spoken. He opened it off and um, opened up our side of the debate. And he was just gave such a brilliant talk. And I would, you know, encourage people to to um, watch his talk. Um, his name is Rudolf Barenhue. And I would, you know, watch my talk as well, because I talk about, um, you know, why I think we should be able to genetically engineer humans. Um, mm -hmm. And those are on YouTube. Um, I've also kind of wrote an article about my experience on that. And that's also on my Medium site, um, along with that 10 crispiest CRISPR applications that are not gene editing um so people have a good resource if they want to find out more about all of this okay excellent yeah i'll go ahead and add those in the yeah. show notes and uh, i'll put them on all the social media pages so that people can can link to those and check them out fantastic all right well thank you again i much appreciated having all you right. uh, a lot of fun thanks so much yeah have a good sunday right. you too bye What a great chat with Dr. Carol Kircho on CRISPR. If you enjoyed the show, remember to like and subscribe at all your favorite podcasting places. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Visit us at Facebook at facebook.com slash dash of science or our website at dash of You can also check me out on Twitter at Physicist Chris. That's all for now. Have a great and wonderful rest of your week. And remember, live, learn, build. Music for this show was written and produced by Ghost Tube Productions.